when Yaakov went in to take the bracha that was supposed to go to Esav, he walks into his father's tent and he's wearing the big day chamudos, the precious garments that Esav wore. He was wearing the gedi, the skin of a animal on his hands and the back of his neck, so you should look hairy as Esav. And he intended to pose as Esav to take the bracha from Yitzhak. And the Pesach says, V'yigash Yaakov a Yitzhak aviv. Yaakov was brought forth to his father Yitzhak. Yitzhak wanted to feel him. V'yimishuhu. And in fact, that's what Yitzhak did. But still there was something amiss. He felt the arms. He felt the neck. But there was something that was troubling Yitzhak. V'yomra kol kol Yaakov the voice is the voice of Yaakov, the hands are the hands of Esav, the famous Pasuk. And basically, what's happening here is there's something that's tipping off Yitzhak. There's, it's not correct. There's something wrong with the picture here. The begadim are fine, the clothing is correct, the hairy part is correct, but there's something wrong. And don't make a mistake to think it was the voice because these were twins. And their voice was so similar that it wasn't the voice. But Rashi explains what it is that made Yitzhak suspect that in fact this wasn't Esav, but was rather Yaakov. The person standing in front of Yitzhak now was speaking with gentle expressions. Kumna, please get up. But Esav never spoke that way. Esav spoke in very authoritative, very demanding expressions. You come, Avi, get up, Father. It wasn't the voice, it wasn't the clothing, it wasn't the hands. It was the expressions, because the person in front of Yitzhak was using very careful and very gentle, very proper expressions. Please, my father, get up. Please eat. And that's not the way Esav spoke. Esav spoke in a rude, curt, <coughs> disrespectful manner. And from that, Yitzhak suspected it was someone else. It wasn't, in fact, Esav. It was, in fact, Yaakov. But his suspicions were allayed by feeling. And, in fact, he gave the brachas to Yaakov. And I'd like to ask a very obvious question on this Rashi. Chazal tell us that there never was a human being who kept kibbit av v'aim, as did Esav. Throughout history, there was never a man who respected his parents, with that type of regard, with that type of demeanor and behavior. So here's the question. How is it possible that Esav would speak in a rude manner? He respected his father greatly. He was, again, according to Ghazal, the paradigm, the human being that we emulate in terms of Kibben Av. How is it possible that Rashi is telling us that he regularly would speak in a rude, disrespectful, almost vulgar manner, and here was something unusual because this person was courteous. That means Esav spoke in a way that was inappropriate to his father. But it doesn't make sense. Because if he respected his father, and if he fulfilled Kibbut Avaim, wouldn't you imagine he also spoke properly, respectfully, in a very careful manner? And let's deepen this question a little bit. <clears throat> Shimon Gamliel says, kimo ani. Rishim Gamaliel says, there was never a person who treated his father with the type of respect that I treated my father. He searched through history, he searched through the Tanaim, 
And he never found an individual who treated his father with the respect that he treated his father. And then says Rabbi Shem Gamliel, and then I saw what Esav did for his father, and I said I was nothing compared to Esav. So he explains to Rabbi Shem Gamliel that when his father was there, and Rabbi Shem Gamliel went to serve him, he would wear servant's garments. He wanted to show humility. He wanted to show that his father was his master, and he would do anything for his father, so he put on servant's garments. But says Rabbi Shem Gamliel, that's not what Esav did. Esav put on the big day chamudos, the coveted garments. What were those coveted garments? When Hashem threw Adam Rishon out of Gan Eden, Hashem made for him a cloak, magnificent, beautiful, handcrafted by Hashem himself. Nimrod became the owner of those begodim. Nimrod was a gibar tzayed, he was a great hunter, because on these begodim were all the animals illustrated. There were pictures of all the different animals, and when the animals in the woods would see those pictures on those begodim, on those clothing, they would flock to that begod. And they saw their likeness in that cloak, and they would come close. Hence it was simple for Nimrod to hunt, because all the animals would come to him. When Esav saw this, Esav coveted those garments. And in fact, Esav killed Nimrod for that begod. Esav kept that begod at his mother's house because his own wives he didn't trust. And this begod he would wear to serve his father. He wasn't afraid of getting it stained. <clears throat> he wasn't afraid of it becoming sullied when he served the soup or whatever it may be because it didn't matter. And the Medrash tells us that Rabbi Shemagam says, I did not reach a hundredth of the Kibbut Av of Did Esav. So let's focus on something. Esav is not known as Esav HaTzadik. As a matter of fact, Esav Arasha is the title that's used. Gemara tells us that Esav was kofer, denied everything. He denied Olam Haba, he denied the world to come, he denied mitzvahs. In fact, the Gemara tells us that he denied Hashem's existence. He was a heretic, a complete kofer. So here's the question. If he's a kofer, why did he keep the mitzvah of Kiban Av? Why did he respect his parents? Why did he act with such regard to his parents? There's no world to come, there's no mitzvahs, there's no God. Why is he doing a mitzvah? And I believe the answer to this question is a fundamental concept. You see, Esav was created with the greatness to be one of the Avos. He was created with the greatness to be up there in the league of the greatest human beings who ever lived. He turned the wrong way, and he went the opposite. But within him was an neshama that was pure and was holy. And because it was a pure and holy neshama within him, there was a sense of appreciation for what his parents did for him. They brought me into the world. They clothed me. They fed me. Everything that I am, I am because of them. And it was an unending sense of appreciation, a sense of what could I ever do to begin to repay my parents for everything that they've done for me. And it was a humanistic sense, a deep-rooted sense in his heart that I have to do for them. Why? Not because of the world to come, not because of God, not because of mitzvahs, but because look what they've done for me, I have to do back for them. With that as a focal point, let's now re-ask the question. 
The man is not keeping the mitzvah, keeping out the aim for some outside reason, not to gain his world to come, not because of the mitzvah. He's keeping it because he genuinely appreciates and respects his parents. So if this man is standing in front of his father, who he reveres, who is willing to take the big day chamudos, his most precious garments, and wear them because that's the honor I need to show to my father, how is it possible that he used disrespectful language, get up, dad, move? How is it possible that he was rude? He clearly respected his father more than even Rameshem Gamaliel did. So how is it possible that he spoke in language that was clearly the opposite, that was discourteous? And I believe the answer to this question is a very important episode. And that is, you is what you is. And what I mean by that is, a person can have different understandings and different perspective, but the habits that you acquire are you. And it's true that Asaph greatly respected his father, but Asaph was rude and discourteous. He spoke in a gruff manner. That was who the man was. And if you talk to a street urchin, even if he respects his boss or whoever it may be, there's a roughness, there's a, a gruff tone. And despite the fact that Asaph greatly, greatly respected his parents more than we probably could ever imagine, he was who he was. And because he had a certain daya, because he had a certain understanding, it didn't change the nature that he acquired. He had made himself into a rude, discourteous person. And even despite the fact that he greatly respected his father, Within him was that same nature, that's the way he spoke, that's the way he acted, and the way he acted came out, so that when he, Yitzchak was there, and this person who was in front of him was speaking, please, if it pleases my father, and using careful expressions, Yitzchak said, there's something wrong here, this doesn't add up. And it didn't add up, because Esav, despite the tremendous respect, regard, and love he had for his parents, was still the person he was, he was rude, he was gruff, and that came out even when he was fulfilling the mitzvah of Kibbutz. And I believe that this concept is fundamental to understanding how to be successfully married. If you watch enough of Hollywood's version of marriage, Western culture's understanding, there is a common thought. Love will change all. I'll love her, she'll love me, and everything will be magical. And any rough edges will be smoothed out. <clears throat> Anything that was slightly off, it won't matter. Because love is the cure for everything. And I'd like to share with you that it isn't. Because love will not change you. Love will not take a discourteous, rude person and make him courteous and polite. It didn't for Esav. Esav had such a regard that in the course of humanity, there never was a person who had that appreciation, that love, that respect for his father, and yet he remained who he was because his habits, his behaviors, the way he spoke was part of his nature, and love won't change it. If you want to change, you have to change the behavior, change the habits, but love won't change it. And I believe that this concept is fundamental for a successful marriage. You see, every chosen and kala starts out joyful with the assumption that this is going to be beautiful. The way we act now is the way we'll always act. 
And it's true that every chassan and kala fulfills the Rambam's formula perfectly. He respects her more than even he does himself. He loves her as he loves himself. And the kala looks at the chassan and treats him with tremendous honor, yosemidai, tremendous, exceeding honor. And they're right on the path for a perfect marriage, and everything's wonderful. And yet, it doesn't always pan out that way. And I'd like to share with you why. We've spent a lot of time discussing that you have to work on your marriage. And that part, once you understand, most people are pretty good at Now let's imagine for a minute that I've focused on this and I started really, really working on my marriage. So I made sure that I spent time with my wife in a romantic setting. We go out once a week and we spend time. We really develop the interests and we use all the tools. And imagine for a minute that we spend time speaking and we spend time really getting close to each other, bonded by talking about large things and small things. And imagine that I'm attuned to her needs and she's attuned to mine. And imagine everything is headed perfectly, except I have a little flaw. Listen, everybody has a flaw. I have a little flaw. It's called a temper. And listen, you know, every once in a while I open my mouth and I say things. Not that often, once every couple of weeks, maybe, whatever. Certainly not every day. I I lose it. And uh, the truth, I don't really mean it. And, you know, 10 minutes later, I'm back to equilibrium. And it's very true that if I were the only partner in this marriage, I could remain successfully married. But the problem is that there is a partner in this marriage besides me, and it's called the other person. And it's a very interesting thing that happens to a wife when a husband screams at her. You see, different people react differently. Some women dish it right back. Whoa, and you get it back very loud, louder than you started. Some don't. Some let, it, some let the wound kind of fester. And it comes out two weeks later or a week later. But either way, it isn't pleasant. Because I said something long ago, forgot it. And she says something a day later or ten minutes later. I say and she says and she says and I said. And it's just human nature that when you're attacked... You feel attacked, you attack back, and the downward spiral begins. I'd like to share with you a Maisa Shahaya, an actual event that happened. I got a phone call, and it sounded something like this. Rebbe, she, she left me. She left me. She wanted to go for counseling. She wanted to say why. She just left. I was crying, and I almost dropped the phone. Why? Because for the past two years, I've been dragging them from marriage counselor to marriage counselor, trying to get this guy to learn to shut his mouth. He was the single most abusive husband I had ever encountered. And if you were to hear the words that he said, they would make your hair stand on end. But he said exactly these words. It's true I say those things, but I don't really mean them. And 10 minutes later, I'm calm. Why can't she just let it go? What's her problem? And what he didn't understand was that his words penetrated deep into our heart. The person that she loved and the person that she made herself completely open to and vulnerable attacked her bitterly with words that damaged, with words that hurt. And it's true 
The 10 minutes later, he calmed down and he forgot it. But the hurt was there. And she couldn't just brush it off. She couldn't just forget it. And it festered and it came out. And she would say something. She just couldn't take it anymore. And she'd say something. And for no good reason, unbelievable, she attacks me out of nowhere. And he couldn't figure out for the life of him why she would all of a sudden get hostile and start attacking. Well, he's not the kind of guy who takes things lying down. So, of course, he gave it back to her, back and forth and back and forth. And here's the point. The first part of a successful marriage is working on the love. The glue of a marriage is that bond of love, of attachment, and you have to spend a lot of time. You have to spend time romantically. You have to keep the courtship going. You have to spend a lot of time talking, learning each other's needs and communicating. There are also roles in the physical intimacy. But after you've done all of that, you have to make sure that there aren't leaks that are letting that love seep out. And if you imagine a balloon, imagine that you blow up the balloon, and it blows up nicely, and it's filled, except one little problem. You take a pin and put a hole in it. Well, guess what? All that air escapes. If you work on the marriage and you spend time together and you build a sense of bond of love and you're sharing life together and it's wonderful, but you keep poking hold in that balloon, well, guess what? The love leaks out. And there are three categories of things that I would call love leaks, love busters. They let it all seep out. The first, something called angry outbursts. When you lose your temper for good reason or not, and you say hurtful, damaging words, they penetrate deeply <clears throat> into your spouse. And it's not just that they hurt then. It's not an act of love. It's not an act that a friend of mine would do. These are words that are said that attack me, that just cut to the core. And it's very hard for me to love you when I feel that you're my enemy. And the first of the categories is angry outbursts. And these are words that come from men and from women. I don't know that anyone has a monopoly on this. You'll have a time when a wife will call up the husband, please, please go shopping. I need this and this. And she gives him a whole grocery list. And he comes back. And he begins taking out the items, this item and that item. And she says, where, where, where are the breadcrumbs? Oh, yeah, I forgot. You forgot the breadcrumb. You forgot the bread. That means I have to make a special trip. It means I have to go out again. Why can't you ever remember? What is your problem? I asked you to get breadcrumbs. Why can't you just remember what I asked you to get? And what's he thinking? Madam, with all due respect, you asked me to go shopping. I did it. I was busy, but I did it. And I got 23 items, and I forgot one. Could you please be nice? But she's not being nice. She may be upset. She may be frustrated, but the words that she's saying are not nice at all. And the words that she's saying penetrate deeply, and the words that she says to her husband as that balloon <clears throat> pop a pin into it and the love just leaks out, the feelings that he has towards her after she said those words are very different than the feelings he had before. And you could work on the marriage, and you could work on the attachment, and work on the bond of love, but if you don't stop the leaks, you're going to have a lot of trouble. And the first of the leaks, first of the love busters, 
are angry outbursts, <clears throat> words that are spoken, that are hostile, <clears throat> that are aggressive, that are hurtful. And it doesn't always have to be with a temper, and it doesn't even have to be necessarily loud, and it certainly doesn't have to be screaming. Sometimes it could be something as small as a, what's the matter with you? Or even less. Sometimes it could be a look. Contempt can come with a look. Anger could come with a look. And many times it doesn't have to be, I never raise my voice. I don't know what, I don't know what he's talking about. Never want, do I ever ask, my, ask the neighbors? I never scream. I never holler. I never yell. That may be true. But friends don't act that way to friends. And if you don't curb these angry outbursts, large or small, loud or quiet, they put a pin in the balloon and the love leaks out, and it makes it very, very difficult to have a loving attachment to be bonded properly. And the first of the love busters, first of the love leaks, are exactly that, angry outbursts. But there's another category. The second category are something that I would call annoying habits. Now, these annoying habits come in many flavors, many variations. It could be <clears throat> coming late, you know, habitually coming late, not because you're mean, not because you're cr- cruel, and not even because you're callous. Just my habit, I come late. And she waits 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and it bothers her. And I do it, and it bothers her, and I do it, and it bothers her. Well, guess what? It makes it very hard for her to know that she's loved. Because if you tell her that you love her, you tell her that you're concerned for her, you tell her that she's number one, but you leave her waiting, your actions speak way louder than do your words. When she's waiting for you, and she let you know that it's very important that you, you be on time, what she hears loud as a bell is the fact that you don't care. Her wishes, her concern, her embarrassment don't matter to you. And you could apologize, and you could cry and you could write love notes after the message that she hears clear as day is you don't care and if you're late as a habit as a regular occurrence you have to change that or if you're sloppy listen you're sloppy that's the way you keep house no one ever bothered you had maids when you were a young girl growing up and you're not really fussy and your husband lets you know that he's embarrassed. House is, I don't want to say anything dear, but house just doesn't look nice and it's, it's a mess. And it bothers him. And that message that he hears loud and clear is that his wishes aren't important. What matters to him doesn't matter to you. And all of the stories and all of the excuses, and even if you are really busy, and even if the really things are going on, but it's something that bothers him, something that annoys him, and it's an annoying habit. If you're rude, listen, that's why I have, come on. I make jokes at other people's expenses. I say things, come on. What are you getting all bent out of shape for? Come on, I don't mean it really. That may be true. It could well be that you don't mean it, and it could even be that other people laugh. Ha, ha, ha. Very funny. But if your wife is embarrassed, you're hurting her, you're damaging her. If you leave your socks on the floor, if you miss appointments, if you bounce checks, and the list goes on and on and on. And if you're not sure if you have an annoying habit or not, just listen to your spouse. I told you one million times. I told you 10,000 times. I asked you over and over. Just listen to the words that your spouse 
says, you'll know very quickly whether that's a habit that annoys him or her, and you'll know very quickly what it is that you have to work on. And I'd like to share with you that if you're like most people, I'm sure you have a lot of good traits, kind, considerate, giving, caring, but likely you also have uh, some other things. And each one of us have idiosyncrasies, and we have ways of doing things, and we very likely have annoying habits. And I'd like to share with you that one of the key demands of a marriage is that you protect your spouse. That's one of the obligations, a husband to protect his wife and a wife to protect her husband. That doesn't mean necessarily physically, but certainly emotionally and certainly psychologically. And I dare say that one of the obligations of a husband to a wife and a wife to a husband is to protect your spouse from you. If you have annoying habits, if you have angry outbursts, if you have these types of things that surface on a regular basis, your job is to change. You have to learn how to stop doing them. You have to protect your spouse from you. And you can't just say the words, oh, it's my nature, it's the way I am. Because you can say those words, but you have to understand that the cost of those habits, the cost of those outbursts are grave. Because working in a marriage is great. <clears throat> Spending time in a romantic setting is great. And all of the love notes and all of the flowers and all of the cards are fantastic. And it goes a long way to blowing up that balloon. Look how filled it is. Wow, amazing. And then you pop a hole in it, <clears throat> whether it's your annoying habits or your angry outbursts, whether it's coming late or being sloppy or whatever it is, you're screaming louder than your words, I dishonor you. You're not number one to me. You're not my first priority because look at my actions. And the first two of the love leaks, the love busters, are damaging. Angry outbursts and annoying habits. But it's the third that's far more common and far more damaging. I'll explain to you what the third is. If you ask a 13-year-old, what is your marriage going to be like? Oh, it's going to be wonderful. I'm going to love her. She's going to love me. Everything she does is going to be pleasing to me because I love her. And obviously everything that I do is going to be pleasing to her. And if there's ever anything, anything in the world that she wants me to do, of course I'll do it because, <clears throat> because I love her. So I'll be willing and, and want to do it. And of course, because she loves me back, anything that I want to do, of course she's going to do. And then they get married. <laughs> and then what they discover is that it's not quite the way it works. Even before the magic wears off, even when they're still in that magical, enchanted phase, and they're happily in that state, he finds himself in a very strange place. She wants me to do something, and I don't want to do it. But I want to do it because I want to please her, but I don't want to do it. She wants to go to her parents for Purim, but I really don't want to go. But she wants me to, but I don't want to. But she wants me to, but I don't want to. And do I take the car and you take the train, or the other way around? Maybe you take the car and I take the train. Do I go out play ball, Monte Shabbos, and you sit home, or do we go together to your parents? 
And what he and she both discover very quickly is love is wonderful, but it's not magic. And you still have desires, interests that have nothing to do with your spouse. And even if the enchantment is still there, there are going to be many, many things that your spouse is going to want you to do and you're not going to want to do it. And it cuts the gamut of all areas. There are so many issues that your spouse views one way and you view the other. And what you're going to find is you really don't want to do these things. And then you're stuck. Because for the first time maybe in your life, on a regular, ongoing basis, you have to choose. It's either me or you. You see, I don't know if you realize this, but we live in a world that's so opulent, so luxurious. We live such a pampered existence that it's hard to imagine. If you took people living a hundred years ago, they wouldn't even believe the luxurious life settings that we have. And from the time that you were a little child, everything was handed to you and everything was about you. What's the best for you? What's the best school for you? What's the best extracurricular activity for you? How will you benefit? And when it's time for high school, <clears throat> what's best for you? How will, what will serve you best? When it's time for camp, what's the best camp for you? When it's time for seminary or yeshiva, <clears throat> where will you thrive? Where will you flourish? And your entire life from the cradle, from the cradle until you get married was about you you say the words, and life changes. All of a sudden, it's not about you. It's about us. But us has two parts. There's the I and the you. And all of a sudden, you find yourself upfront and personal with this reality. She wants one thing, and I want another thing. She wants to do this, and I don't want to do this. And all of a sudden, you find yourself, maybe for the first time in your life, in a situation where you really, really, on a regular and ongoing basis, have to do things that you don't want to do. And I'd like to share with you, if you'd like to know the single biggest turnoff in a relationship, the single biggest defeater of love in a marriage, it's self-centeredness. Imagine you wake up one morning and you say to yourself, I can't believe it. I, I, I just don't believe it. All my wife cares about is herself. I mean, it's all she's focused on, her needs, her wants, what's good for her, what's in her interest. I, I just cannot believe it. If you feel that way, how much good feelings do you have to your wife? How much love do you feel? And it's both on the side of the husband and it's both on the side of the wife. But there's one little difference. There's a very real difference between men and women in a marriage. And one of those differences surfaces in an interesting way. There's a little children's game that uh, the girl will hold up a little daisy and she'll pick out the petals. And the game goes something like this. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. And she picks out the petals one by one. He loves me. He loves me not. And whatever she's left with, she knows whether he loves me or loves me not. Now, I don't know if it's appropriate children's game or not, but I'd like to share with you that I almost guarantee 
that that is the game that your kala will be playing for the first year for sure and maybe even longer. The question that she's constantly looking at, the question that's constantly coming across her mind is, does he love me? Is he really concerned for me? Am I really cherished? Am I really number one? And every action that you do, every decision that you make, everything that happens in your marriage is going to be in the category of he loves me or he loves me not. He loves me or he loves me not. She doesn't intend to do it. She doesn't mean to do it. But a woman has an emotional need to attach. She has an emotional need to be bonded, to be in a relationship. And what she's constantly hearing is, he loves me, he loves me not. And when you focus on the fact that the single biggest turnoff in any relationship is self-centeredness, and you realize that we are brought up in an extraordinarily self-centered world, you recognize that we have a very difficult problem being successfully married. In Western culture, there is one radio station that is more popular than any other. Throughout the Western world, there is one station that almost everyone listens to. That station is WIIFM. WIIFM is an acronym for What's In It For Me. And what's in it for me is the mantra of Western civilization. Certainly the core of marketing media's message, but it's all about me. What's in it for me? What do I gain? Me, 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 and only me. And when you live in a culture that speaks about me, and you deserve the best, and why should you suffer, and you should have it, and you're accustomed to getting it all the time since you're a little kid, whatever you needed, whatever you wanted, you got it was easy street. Well, guess what? You get married and you find out that it's not all about you. It's about us. And the us has two parts. There's an I, there's a you, and there are two of us. And in this marriage, what you find is that there are many, many times that you have to say the words, I want this, but I'm not going to do it. I want to have this, but I'm not going to have this. And there are many, many situations where you're forced to actually make that very difficult choice of becoming other-centered. And if you'd like to understand one of the great challenges of being successfully married, it's learning to actually care about another human being, to learn to actually look at the needs of another person and putting that person's needs ahead of yours. And every time it comes out, especially in the beginning of a marriage, it's always, why do I have to always do it for her? Why do I have to do it for him? It's always his way. It's always her way. And so many of the fights, so many of the issues in a marriage circle around this single point when the couple realize that they can't always have it their way. Okay, fine. So I won't always have it, but 99% of the time, I mean, almost all the time, I expect that. She won't say it. He won't say it. But it's sort of a understood presumption. It's going to be my way. And for marriage to work, you have to be interested, focused on pleasing the other person, not interested in getting your way. And if you're focused on pleasing yourself, if you're focused on getting your way, you're going to have a very difficult time being successfully married because your spouse will hear it loud and clear. And don't think you could fool him or her. There's no fooling, there's no hiding. I'll share with you an interesting line. Kissinger had become the Secretary of State. 
he was being introduced to all the various people, and he met Pat Nixon, President Nixon's wife. And he said, oh, Mrs. Nixon, your husband is unbelievable. And Kissinger was going on and on about how great Nixon was. And Mrs. Nixon looked at Kissinger and said the words, you haven't seen through him yet? What she was saying clearly was, there's an outer face and there's the real person. And the real person ain't what the outer face is. And you will not fool your spouse for very long. You cannot hide for very long. And the only solution is to actually work on yourself. And one of the great keys to a successful marriage and probably the single point that's vital and can't marriage can't exist without is your ability to work on what the other person needs, what the other person wants, and putting your own self-interest aside. And all of us walk into a marriage assuming it's easy. I'm a nice guy. I'm a fine girl. I'm not the kind of person who's creepy and selfish. All my friends, come on. All my friends say I'm a Baal Chesed, and I always do things, and I'm always volunteering, I'm always happy. I'm, come on, I'm not the kind of person who's going to have trouble until you find yourself in a marriage, and it's on a day-to-day basis, and it's things that bother you, and things that you don't want to do, but your wife wants you to, or your husband wants you to, and it matters to him. It doesn't matter to you, but it matters to him, and you get into that mode, that realization that you have to change. And this last of the love busters, selfish demands is the most damaging to a marriage. Selfish demands mean my interests against your interests, my needs against your needs. You don't count. I'm in charge. This is my marriage. And I'm not going to give in because why should I? I'll be nice. I'll take you out to dinner. I'll be fine as long as we do things my way. And if that's your attitude, whether you understand it or not, whether you say it or not, whether you recognize it or not, it comes out. It comes out, and obviously it destroys a marriage. And the only solution really is to work on it. But the problem is that working on it takes a long time. Working on it takes years and years And by the time you're ready to really, really work and really change, it might be too late. So I'd like to share with you some things that might help in the interim, in the growth process. The first is just a realization. You see, once you realize that a marriage is about compromise, once you realize that a marriage by definition means that there are many, many, many things that you're not going to get your way, that understanding alone is significant. Because I can't tell you how many young married people and even older married people have the attitude, the problem is my wife. She's so demanding. She absolutely demands we do this and this and everything her way. It's always her way. But when you look at it, you see that it's not always her way, but it's sometimes her way, maybe even half the time her way. And that's not something he's accustomed to. And when she's very used to getting her way, And she's always gotten her way. And all of a sudden she has to do things for his good and his interest. He's always demanding, I do this and do that and do that. He's such a demanding. It's so uncomfortable being married to him. Why is he so difficult? And it may be true that he's difficult. But it also might be true that he's just asking 
that you be fair. And working on this issue, the selfish demands and getting rid of it, is essential for the success of marriage because spending all the time going out and spending all the time building that love, blowing that, that, that balloon, building it, building it, blown up huge, selfish demands pop a hole in it and the air just leaks out, the balloon comes down, the love just escapes and gone. So the first technique for working on it is, again, just being aware, just realizing that marriage, by definition, is about compromise. There's no boss. No one's in charge, and no one has the right to say it's my way or the highway. It's not the relationship of marriage. Relationship of marriage, by definition, means sometimes my way and sometimes your way. And that realization alone, that I'm going to be forced to make many, many changes, many, many compromises, can go a long way to helping make the adjustment. But the real goal is a different understanding. It's not you, it's not I, it's us. You see, getting from the stage of being two separate identities and two separate individuals to the ultimate goal of us, the couple, it takes a long time, but at least conceptually, it's easy to understand. If you buy a stock and the stock goes up and you make a million dollars, you as a couple are now wealthy. If you start a business and the business succeeds, well, guess what? You as a couple are now the owners of a successful business. We have children, a good number of children. You as a couple are now the proud parents of a family. But this is the concept. You're in this together, one unit, one bonded unit together. There's no you, there's no I, it's us. And that's the ultimate goal, and that's the ultimate objective. And it takes a while, many, many years to get there, but that's the goal. The first step in getting there, again, is the just the realization that to get there, there's a lot of work involved. To get there, there's a lot of changing and a lot of compromising. And I'd like to give you one more piece of advice that I think is very helpful for getting there. Never, never, ever say no to your spouse. Never. Don't say the word. Your wife says to you, I'm going to buy a couch. I'm going to paint the room green. I'm going to go on vacation to London. Whatever she says, don't ever say the word no. Now, you say, I mean, that's crazy. How can I say no? Give her everything she wants all the time. No, I didn't say give her everything she wants. But don't ever say the word no. And I'll explain to you why. She presents an idea that to you is kooky and crazy and outlandish. When you say the words no, you started the fight. Then you may be able to defend yourself. You may be able to explain after. Well, the reason why I said no was because... But you're on the defensive. You already threw out an arrow. You told her that her idea is wrong, weird, or you're just not going to do it because you don't want to. You started a fight, and then you try to defend yourself. If you're wise, what you do is you say, let me hear. You want to go to your parents' shabbos? Okay. Why? <clears throat> Maybe you know why. Okay, you'd like to go, I guess, because you know you want to spend time with your brother and your sister and etc. And let's imagine for a minute that, for the record, you don't like going to her parents. Or you just went there or whatever the reason, you have a good reason not to go there. You listen very carefully to what she's saying. And if you're able to go there and be soulful, you do. And if you feel you can't, you explain why I hear, and I'd like to, 
On the other hand, I really, you know, I really like to stay home. You know, I'm really tired, whatever the reason is. And as a couple, you discuss the pros and the cons of the unit called us going there or not going there. Now, in the end, the answer may be no, you're not going to go. But it wasn't you, totalitarian dictator, saying no. It wasn't you separating from the us, saying my will will win the day. It's us as a couple discussing it. It's not the total solution because if your answer in the end is always no, 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 at the end of the game, well, guess what? Your spouse is going to recognize it, but it's a huge step forward. Never say the word no. If your husband says, I want to do this, why? Let me hear why. And you listen why. And in fact, he may have a good reason. But even if he doesn't have a good reason, he knows that you're listening he knows that you're here, and you may present to him the other side. Well, I, I understand that it's point to you, and, and I know you want to do it, but you know I don't know if you realize that to me it means da 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 whatever. And again, what you're doing is you're discussing it as a couple. But the knee-jerk reaction of no, we're not doing that. We're doing this way. We're not doing that. Is such a damaging force. Again, at the end of the day, this technique will not solve all of compromise issues. And won't bring a couple into total harmony because what's really needed to do that is relating to one another as a unit, as a bond pair, together sharing life. And that takes many, many years and takes a tremendous amount of changing who I am. But certainly the techniques, viewing us as a unit, understanding that we're together, understanding that everything we do, we do together, we become wealthy together, we become poor together. We have a great life together. We have a horrible life together. We have children together. Everything we do, we do as one unit together. And viewing it that way certainly goes a long way forward. And training yourself to never say no. Listening carefully, <clears throat> explaining the other way. And just remember, as long as you didn't say the word yes, you can always say no later. Don't be afraid that your husband is going to walk all over you. <clears throat> if I don't say no immediately, he's going to... No, you can always say no two minutes later, ten minutes later. But the difference of whether you listen is whether he hears that you're fighting him or he hears that there's another side. Maybe she's right. Maybe there's a reason not to do this. Maybe there's a reason too. But if as a couple you're talking, you're discussing, you're one unit, sometimes it'll be my way, sometimes your way, two reasonable people working together can find solutions. It's when one decides that I'm in charge, I'm the boss, it's going to be my way, that's when you start getting problems. But more than anything, you have to change. And I believe what this Chazal is telling us, and it's a huge concept, Esav loved his father, Esav respected his father more than any other human being, but he was who he was. And that's fine for Esav, and it doesn't matter. But in a marriage... If you walk in saying, this is who I am, and I'm not changing, I got news for you. You're going to have a lot of trouble. Because I don't care who you are. I guarantee you have habits and things that are going to bother your spouse. Whether it be the way you dress, the way you talk, the way you walk, whatever it may be. And you may feel that it's irrelevant and it doesn't matter. But if it bothers your spouse, it's an issue. And even if you don't have angry outbursts, And let's even say, for the record, you're reasonably 
bad habit free, which I don't think there was a human being born yet that way. But this last point, <clears throat> selfish demands and doing life from my perspective is part and parcel of Western culture. We're all afflicted by it. And I don't care where you're born. <clears throat> it's almost natural to the human. When you were born as a baby, you were hungry, you cried. <clears throat> you wet your diaper, you cried. Everything that you needed, you demanded, and you got it, and you got used to it, and you got very comfortable that way. And you spent your entire life knowing that reality. What I need, I get. And then you get married, <clears throat> and reality changes. And one of the key growth areas in a marriage is that ability to change. I was once speaking to a marriage therapist who I really respected. He had been he was an older gentleman already by the time that I began referring people to him. And he had a lot of wisdom. And I really held of his opinion. And I sent him a certain couple. And he was working with them. And they weren't changing. They're still doing the same foolish things. And at a certain point, I called him up and I said to him, I don't get it. Why, why are they still doing it? Why don't, they just, why, why don't they just change? And he said to me these words, most people that I see would rather die than change. Granted, he was being facetious, but this fact that we human beings don't change that easily that we don't take so kindly to change is a huge obstacle to a successful marriage, even if you were very popular in high school. And even if all the girls in your seminary said you were the sweetest, nicest person in the world, if you're not able and willing to change, I'd like to share with you, it's going to be very difficult for a person to be successfully married to you. And as a matter of fact, if I had my druthers, if I were in charge, I would institute a new document in the wedding. And before you sign the Tanoim, before you sign the Ksuba, I would have the Chosen and the Kala sign a Shtar Hachlofa. You may say, what's a Shtar Hachlofa? I never heard of it. And you never heard of it because, unfortunately, it hasn't been instituted yet. But a Shtar Hachlofa is a document of change. And here's the wording of it. I, the undersigned, do hereby proclaim the following. Number one. I recognize that the basis for any successful marriage is my ability to change. Number two, I acknowledge that my wife slash husband will be different than I in temperament, inclination, attitudes, desire, backgrounds, and interests. Number three, I accept that for any partnership to exist, there must be compromise and that I must be willing to change in any of these areas. By signing, I hereby decree that I am ready, willing, and able to change grow and compromise in all areas, signed the Hassan and the Kala. And I'd like to share with you that if we instituted that document and couples would actually abide by it, many, many multitude of problems that exist would not exist. But the problem is, I'm going to change, want me to change. I should change for her. I should change for that. Why should I change? Let her change. It's her problem. She doesn't like the way I make jokes. She doesn't like the fact that I leave my socks around. Let her get used to it. It's her problem. And if you're not willing to change, and I'd like to share with you, you're going to have a very, very rough time being married. And even if you don't have such a tough time, believe me, your spouse will. And if you're the kind of person who's just used to doing things your way, and you could be nice and sweet, and everyone says she has such good midos. 
But if you're unwilling to change, it's going to be very hard for your spouse to be married to you. And I once had a fellow say to me, yeah, it's true we have a good marriage now, but you know what she demanded? <clears throat> she demanded I change my whole personality. I mean, it was a revolution. She was crazy. I had to almost revolutionize who I was as a person. And I read those words and almost wanted to laugh. Why? And because he forgot to mention that he's one of the most difficult human beings I've ever met. If I say black, he says white. If I say up, he says down. He's a difficult person. And no kidding, she demanded that he change <clears throat> because she made him into half a mensch. And even if that doesn't describe you, and even if you're fully a mensch or fully a wonderful person, the reality is that you're going to have to change to be happily and successfully married because that's part and parcel of the union. There's no utilitarian, there's no single person who's totally in charge, there's no, I'm the boss and you do it all my way. It just doesn't work that way. The way it works is sometimes my way, sometimes your way, and it means and demands changing how I act, how I behave, what I do. And it means for the first time in my life, taking another human being's needs into consideration. And if you walk into the marriage with the idea, love is going to change everything. I'll love her and she'll love me and it's going to be great. I'm afraid to tell you that you're in for a rude awakening. Because Asaph loved his father more than you and I will ever love our spouse. He appreciated, respected them more but it doesn't change who you are. And as much as we have to change and stop the angry outbursts, change the annoying habits, and certainly change the selfish demands, there's also a need on the receiving end of it for tolerance. Let's imagine for a minute that I'm sloppy. I'm sloppy. I leave my socks and my shoes where they shouldn't be. I leave the, the spoons where it shouldn't be. I'm a sloppy person, but I'm working on it but I'm not quite there. There's a certain reality that a spouse has to recognize that there are limitations, there are strengths and weaknesses, and as much as it's the person who has the annoying habits job to change, his or her spouse has to recognize that some things are easy to change and some things aren't. Some things are just a cakewalk and some things aren't. And if for years and years and years he is accustomed to coming late or whatever it may be, to demand that he changes instantly or this is all over is an unfair, unrealistic demand. And as much as the person who has the annoying habit has to change it, the the spouse on the receiving end has to learn to be tolerant and accepting, to overlook, to recognize that we all have weaknesses. And women, I think, can understand this muscle very, very well. If you find me a woman who's more than 40 years old who isn't troubled by the following, I'll be shocked. I'm so fat. I'm so hung, he- heavy. I just, I'm not happy with my weight. I'm, I'm just, I just, I don't know why. I just, madam, I don't understand. What's the problem? There's Weight Watchers. There are all kinds of diets. Why don't you just die? Why don't you just stop? Just don't eat. I'll tell you why not. Because when you're 40 or so, your metabolism changes and the not eating it's very, very difficult. We human beings have a tough time changing. And if your husband smokes and he shouldn't be smoking, but he does and he's working on changing, and you're going to have an intolerant attitude, I will not accept it. He has to work on it. And at the same time he has to work on it, you have to understand, and there has to be a balance. There has to be an understanding between both. This is a unit. We're bonded. We're in this together, this thing called life. 
I have to work on my areas. <clears throat> she has to work on her areas. <clears throat> we also have to be tolerant. And that <clears throat> ultimately is the way a couple begins. Every marriage takes time. <clears throat> Every marriage has many, many hurdles that they go through, many, many ups and downs. But the key is to focus on two areas. <clears throat> Number one, to work on the bond of love. And that means spending time as a couple going out, spending time talking, <clears throat> spending a lot of time together building that connection using the physical intimacy as it should be used, building that love, and it also means protecting that love from the angry outbursts, from the annoying habits, and from the selfish demands. Asaph is a classic example because he was rude, because that was his nature. And love didn't cure it, nor will love make your marriage perfect. Love is the glue of a marriage, and without it, your marriage will be toast. But love alone won't solve all of life's problems. You have to eliminate the love busters, the negatives. And when you do both, you succeed. And I have one more step that I want to close with. A number of years ago, I met a man. And from that conversation on, I began dominating three times a day for Shalom Bias. Now I want to point out that Baruch Hashem were married 26 years. And I'm very happy, and even my wife is very happily married. But since I met that man, three times a day, I asked Hashem for help in Shalom Bayes. I'll explain to you why. This man told me that we were discussing his marriage, and he had been married for over 10 years, and he didn't even know that there was such a thing called a Shalom Bayes issue. He never even heard us. He didn't even know such a thing existed. And what happened was he lost his job and he changed, then she changed, and before you know it, he was divorced. But he'd been married for many, many years and he wasn't even attuned or alert to there being an issue. And from that moment on, I said to myself, I get it. Shalom Bayez is not an easy parsha. It's not easy for two human beings from different walks of life with different needs and different tendencies, different inclinations to now join together in harmony and peace. We each have different needs, different wants. We each have different ways of doing things. And for a marriage to succeed, you have to do the work. The work is building the bond of love. The work is changing. The work is asking myself what it is that bothers my spouse and stop doing it. And the next part is to daven, to ask Hashem for help, because that balance, keeping things as they should be, is a very, very difficult thing. When you do your part, you work hard, you willing to change, Yudaman, Hashem's help. May Hashem grant us the ability to put this into practice, to invest tremendous shalom bias in marriages.